All right. Well, we are in 1 Peter. I think most of you know we're making our way through this great letter. You've been around. You've heard me say already. For us as Calvary, we, we go systematically, uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so we are in, in the book of 1 Peter. If you would like to borrow a Bible, we'd be happy to loan you one. You just have to raise your hand real high, and the ushers will be happy to let you borrow a Bible so you can follow with us. Although we're making our way systematically through 1 Peter, we did have a title for our series. We're calling it Sojourn, which is really just taking right out of the text. Uh, Peter is using the imagery describing us as followers of Christ that we are sojourners. We're pilgrims, uh, you know, on journey. We, um, we're temporary residents on planet Earth, strangers and exiles that are making our way to an eternal destination. And, uh, and Peter has, in this first chapter thus far, um, brought us into two major themes. And they go together, uh, the theme of our salvation, but also our suffering. Now, he will have much more to say about both of those topics. He will expound, especially on the topic of salvation. But you remember with me that uh, after he identifies himself as the writer and then he identifies the reader, he doesn't waste a lot of time. He gets right to the nitty-gritty of the truth that we all encounter as followers of Christ. The blessing, yes, we are saved. The blessing that we have been elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The blessing that you've been chosen. The blessing that God has given you his spirit to work in you. And all of those blessings, however, it does not mean then we won't experience hurt sometimes. It doesn't mean then we won't be exempt or that we're exempt from pain. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have trials and tribulations and troubles. In fact, uh, we should expect them. It's not a matter of uh, if, it's just a matter of when. And we understand by context that the readers of his letter are going through a difficult time. And so he wants to make sure then, as he writes this, uh, and, and he comes back to it, he develops this theme, that when trouble comes and when life gets hard, because it will, that, uh, that they don't, that we don't then get tempted to walk away and say, you know what, this is too hard, I quit. Or that we don't have the wrong idea to think, well, because I'm going through this, that must mean that God doesn't care or God's not powerful or God's not real. That we want to make that wrong conclusion. Or that we would slide back to our old life of sin, which he's going to encourage them not to do. Or worse, that we would just suffer spiritual shipwreck. And so it's in these next verses from verse 10 to 12 that Peter will provide some highlight to the, the significance of our salvation, the treasure that God has given us, and the fact that you and I are saved. And, and so today, much of our application really stems from just the idea of know this, rejoice in this, let your heart be soaked in the truth that God loves you, and he saved you, and we have such a great gift of salvation. Now, based upon that, Peter will give us some direct application, starting in verse 13 and on, and we'll, we'll explore those things in the week to come. 
Uh, although I did have some thoughts, I wanted to put some handles on some of the truths that we'll encounter this morning that we can pick up and carry out with us. And so based upon uh, these verses, we'll look at that. Okay? All right. If you're there with me at First Peter, I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of God and His Word. Again, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Peter, inspired of the Spirit himself, he writes, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Those same prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And Peter adds, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to you and to me, to us, that they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who preached the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he adds a really curious commentary or thought. Things which angels desire to look into. All right. There's a lot of stuff going on there. LJ prayed for us. I appreciate his prayer. Would you take a moment, greet a neighbor, say hello to somebody new. Don't be shy. Say hello. And then you can have a seat. You guys ever uh, watch those TV shows like the Antiques Roadshow or there's a whole plethora of those pawn shop type of TV shows, right, where people bring an old item, uh, something they found, something they got at a yard sale, something grandma gave them, and, and they want to find out, like, is this thing of any value? Can I sell it? Uh, what's the appraisal? Uh, if you watch those shows like I, I have, you, you know that there's sometimes what people do is they'll come in and it seems promising. And then they'll, the appraiser will, at closer inspection, or sometimes they have to go get an expert to evaluate it. And they're like, oh, sorry, this thing's not real, right? It's, it's a fake. It's a forged autograph or whatever it may be. And, and I always find it funny when people get mad. I disagree. Like, I don't agree with the expert. I, I know that this thing is real, right? And they just kind of storm out. But, but oftentimes, uh, the, the item, to their surprise, they're shocked to find out that what they have in their possession, it is worth a lot, right? It's of tremendous value. And, and one of the things that I like about the show is how the appraiser or perhaps the expert will provide some backstory to the item. Or perhaps there's a history uh, that even the seller didn't know, they weren't aware of. And so they'll be able to tell them like, oh, this is where this is from, and this is who you owned it before, and, and all of those type of things. Again, sometimes it's just stuff from a yard sale, it's things found in an attic, uh, or, you know, they had it in a drawer. And some things you just never know. You know, sometimes it's just surprising, the value of something. Uh, in my preparation for sharing this morning, I found out back in October, someone paid $39,000 for an unopened original iPhone from 2007, back in October. In fact, if you were to Google it now, don't do it now because we're in church. Uh, 
there's an ongoing auction, and uh, the price right now, I think, is about $50,000 for that same phone. Then, even beyond that, uh, last year, someone paid $420,000, so a little less than half a million dollars, for a 1999 first edition Pokemon hologram Charizard card. For a Pokemon card, $420,000. That's shocking to me. Anybody remember Beanie Babies? Remember Beanie Babies? (laughs) So I found out some Beanie Babies are worth thousands of dollars. Did you know this? Uh, The most expensive one is the Purple Princess Beanie Baby. $500,000, that Beanie Baby's worth. $500,000. Then when I was looking, I saw this one. And it grabbed my attention. Batty. Batty. $125,000. And why it grabbed my attention is because I'm like, my kids used to have that. And so then I went digging through the toy box. And look what I found. It's a tie-dye one. (laughs) And I thought, this has to be worth more. So I was so excited. I called Christy. We could retire. (laughs) You know how much it's worth? You know how much it's worth? (laughs) Nothing. Who said nothing? (laughs) Marie. You ready for this, you guys? It's worth worth 1,800 yen. Probably less because my kids, when they're younger, sucked the tag. <laughs> they were nothing. They were all excited. Oh, man. Peter tells us hey, you know how much your salvation is worth? He gives us an appraisal of our salvation. In fact, like the appraisers and like those shows, he's going to give us a little bit of history behind it. He's going to provide a a highlight of history and a little bit of insight as to the worth of our salvation and the significance of it. And so for our time this morning, I pray that we'll just be blessed and encouraged, that your heart would be lifted up to think about and consider the fact of how much God loves you in this great salvation, the gift of salvation that God has given you. Again, we'll we'll talk about then what our response should be, as Peter tells us next week. But it's important that we just pause here and let that be, you know, an opportunity for us to worship. It's the first Sunday of the month, by the way, and so we're going to have a time of communion as well. All right. Verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired. Peter identifies this salvation, immediately gives us context to what he's been talking about. In verse 9, right beforehand, in verse 5, he's talked about our salvation, which is, of course, the salvation of our souls. The fact that you and I are saved. The Bible describes it in so many different ways. One of the ways it's described is like a PCS move. You have been moved. We have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness 
And we got orders by Christ in then to the kingdom of light, right? It's, we're described as being born again. Peter uses that phrase, and we've been born again to a living hope. And so there's all these various ways in which that is described. And Peter has talked about this salvation already to us. And he talked about how the, the fact is, it's God picked us. God picked us. You're chosen by the Lord. Elect, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. And our salvation then is a gift that God gives. You don't earn it. We can't be good enough. We can't be religious enough. Uh, we don't rate it. Um, we certainly don't deserve it. And so God chose you. God picked you. God pursued you because God loved you in his great mercy, we are told. Of course, we're also told, well, how did it all happen? Because God paid for you. Jesus Christ died for you, gave his life and his blood for you and for me so that you and I could be born again, so that we could have a place in heaven, born again to a living hope. Peter's already told us that God promises to complete the good work he began in us, that we're going to be delivered. The phrase that he uses is that in sanctification of the spirit. And so our salvation is guarded. It's guaranteed. We're secured. You and I are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul would say nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the Spirit's work then is to sanctify you and prepare you and me for that day. Now, Peter has already told us some really interesting things about our salvation. In fact, we didn't really get into it so much in our last two weeks as we considered it. But he uses these these phrases that almost seem a little bit uh, contradictory, or at least have a little bit of a conflict. He says it's something that we have received, and yet we are also receiving. Notice verse 9. It says, we're receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And so, we have received this gift, and yet at the same time, we're still receiving it. The Bible uses the terms justification and sanctification. We, we've come into the family of God. Yes, God delivered us out of sin and out of the world, but now the Spirit is delivering the world and sin out of us. We're works in progress. So we have received and we are receiving. He's also used the term, it's been revealed to us. And so God opened our eyes to the truth of his grace and his love and his forgiveness. The fact that we are all sinners. So salvation has been revealed to us, but also it's being revealed. Verse 5. Right? You're kept by the power of God through faith, ready to be revealed. And so it's something that is revealed, but also ready to be revealed. We have a... Uh, a deposit of our inheritance now. That anytime we need, we can come boldly to God's throne room of grace. We can experience his presence and his peace and his love and his grace. We have an ATM, a spiritual ATM card that we can withdraw anything that we need. Wisdom and peace and comfort and, and love. And yet at the same time, there's an inheritance that awaits us. A fullness of that, that we have yet to experience, that we have yet to see. And so 
our salvation's been revealed, but it also is going to be revealed. We don't see Jesus now, and yet we love him, we believe him, we trust him. And one day our eyes of faith will become eyes of sight. And like Job, we'll be able to say, and I know that my Redeemer lives, and one day I will see him face to face. Such a great salvation, this gift that God has given us. So great of this salvation, Peter says, the prophets who proclaimed it searched and inquired carefully about it. This was something for them that was intriguing. God revealed his rescue plan from the beginning of creation. And in many ways, it was a mystery to be revealed. In fact, the Bible tells us that. Paul the Apostle, on the same theme, Let's look at it. It's in Colossians chapter 1. You can put your finger in 1 Peter or just tab over. Just a couple of books. It's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians. God Eats Popcorn or General Electric Power Company or however you want to remember that. Colossians. Paul writes to this group, this church, who are in Colossae. And in chapter 1, let me just pick up at verse 25. He says, and he's speaking about the gospel. He's talking about his own sufferings and, and, and God's commission to him. Verse 25, of chapter 1. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. But now it has been revealed to his saints. That's you and me. And to them, God will to make known what are the riches of this glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's just one passage. There's several more where the Bible speaks about how God's plan of salvation, the thing that you and I, if you name the name of Jesus today, get to enjoy. And if you're like me, sometimes I take for granted. That it was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets. They didn't fully understand how it was all going to play out and all the different parts that God had intended for it. And when the Bible uses the word mystery, it's not like a, like a whodunit, you know, Sherlock Holmes. It's like the game of Clue. It was, you know, Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. But it's more of like something that was purposely veiled. It was purposely hid away until the right time. Kind of like a surprise. You think about maybe you want to buy a gift for a loved one and you find the perfect gift, but it's not their birthday yet or it's not the anniversary yet, but it's on sale. So you're like, yeah, I'm going to get it. And so you buy it and you bring it home. And if you have kids, maybe one of your kids sees something and they're like, what is that? You're like, nothing. Go away. If you're like me, right? 
and you wrap it and you go hide it. But because your one kid saw it, now they're curious. So you're like, okay, listen, don't say anything. But you learn, right? You can't tell them everything because they got a big mouth. They're going to just tell, you know, their siblings or tell mom. So you just give them a little bit. I got something. It's going to be a surprise. So you give them little clues or you give them just a little bit of a hint. And what do they do? They go and they share that. It's a little bit like the prophets of the Old Testament. God the Father had this great present, this plan, this rescue plan, but he didn't tell them the whole thing. He had to wait in the fullness of time. In his divine timeline, when all of it would come to revelation. But in the meantime, he gives clues and he gives hints of the plan. to the prophets and different prophets. And so they each get a a piece or a couple pieces to the puzzle of God's picture of salvation. And so they're faithful to proclaim their peace. But we understand they didn't fully understand how that peace was going to fit in the totality of the picture. They didn't understand how it was going to fit. They didn't understand necessarily, you know, how it was all going to work out. And so, from the beginning of creation, there's these hints and foreshadows. Remember when we were studying through Hebrews? The writer of Hebrews says, all of the Old Testament, the entirety of it, is actually a giant picture storybook that points us to Jesus. And it's in Christ that Christ then fulfills the prophecies and the foreshadows and that even the furniture and the fixtures and, and, and the sacrificial system, all of that was a type or a typology that pointed us to Christ. And even in the garden, we get this beautiful foreshadow of a sacrifice, of atoning sacrifice to come. Remember Adam and Eve blew it? And they themselves try to cover themselves. They go get fig leaves. And so they make their own covering, and God comes, and in his love, right, calls them out, busts them. But then what does it say? The Bible says, then God provided them tunics of skin. It's the hint of, a, of an animal sacrifice, right? A, a life sacrifice. They try to cover their sins, but God had to provide a covering for them. And, and from that point on, we have all of these wonderful hints and and. and And pictures pointing us to Jesus. And then Moses and Daniel and Isaiah and Zechariah and Micah and all of the prophets, they all have these little parts of the picture. Faithful to proclaim it, curious themselves as to how this is going to work out. How is this going to fit? We have the advantage To be able to look back and realize all of those pictures coming together, it points to Christ. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament sacrificial system. Even Peter is going to tell us later, behold, Jesus is our Passover lamb. But now in Christ, we have a new contract. We call it a new covenant. John writes of this in his letter, 
John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he says, And of his fullness we've received, grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, in my mind's eye, I imagine the Old Testament prophets in the family of faith, kind of like the older brothers. If you've come from a big family, or perhaps you have a big family yourself, and you have you know, several kids, like my family, my, my older kids will complain that the younger kids have it much easier. In fact, my son Noah turns 24 today, which, man, I feel really old. Anyways. And my oldest son Noah will accuse me and Christy of being softer on Nehemiah and especially on Ben. Which, if you know Ben, like, there's not much I can do anymore. He's 6'3", so I have to threaten him this way. You know. But to Noah's credit, he's not lying. <laughs> I was much stricter with Noah. Uh, you know, we, our, our, our boundary was much closer. And so over time, yeah, I can say I've gotten more relaxed with each kid as come. Right? As new parents, generally, we're, we tend to be hyper aware of safety, of their behavior, of germs. Right? Anything that hits the floor, it's like, we got to boil that for an hour. <laughs> Get sanitized. But by kid number three, kid number four, you're like, eh. You just wipe it on your pants, right? <laughs> or, or you just sanitize it yourself. It's good. Which I probably worse. <laughs> and I imagine in my mind's eye, the Old Testament prophets like that. They, you know, we move from the law to grace, same God, and yet the deal is a little different. And I imagine if the Old Testament prophets saw how God has saved you and blessed you and the grace upon grace upon grace that he's given you, they would trip out. They would trip out. Now, Peter's just writing something descriptive for us. And it's not even necessarily prescriptive. He's not telling us anything to do with this. But, but I want to suggest to you that there, there are some things we can learn, glean from. And I think we can glean them from actually the posture of the prophets. The fact that they investigated and they were curious and they searched carefully if he, the scriptures they themselves who were proclaiming it, and yet they were very curious about it. And so how does it relate for us today? So we can still have that same heart to, to cultivate a thirst and a hunger and a curiosity for the things of God. There are still things that we don't know. And so for us to read and to learn and to memorize and to meditate upon the word, so we can be challenged by their example. And I want to say this in love. I worry, I worry for us, and I include myself, I worry for me. Because I think there's a growing um, preference where we have been accustomed to and then we are giving preference to information that comes to us like Twitter. 260 or 280 characters or less I'm good there. 
And if you're like me, I have noticed, oh, my attention span seems to be shrinking for things. My, my patience seems to be shrinking on things. Someone sends me a video, it's like five minutes, I'm like, that's too long. <laughs> I'm just kind of scrub through the highlights. And, and we find in ourselves, at least if you're like me, right, they begin to prefer then fast and easy, short and shallow. And again, we have to be careful. We do not want that sentiment to come into our spiritual life. Right? Because then we'll be spiritually malnourished. And so we learn from their example. We can be challenged by their example. They inquired. They searched. They had a hunger and an interest in these things. The other thing we can take away uh, is just have humility about our understanding of Scripture. The prophets didn't understand everything that God was doing, God was saying. And even though they didn't understand it all, they still were faithful to obey. They were still faithful to trust. They were still faithful to live their life. And you think about the privilege we have on this side of the cross. The picture of our salvation, we have more of it. We can see what the prophets were looking to by faith. We, we, don't, we don't look back by faith. We can look and just see, oh, that, that was fulfilled. But likewise, we enter into the same lane of faith because there's still things that we don't know yet. Like the picture's not done. That's what Peter's also telling us. There's still more to be revealed. And so likewise, we can still trust by faith. We can still live by faith. And we can still have humility, humil be humble <laughs> to realize we, we don't know it all. And yet, because we, even though we don't know it all, we can still be faithful. So we can be challenged by their example. What else does Peter tell us about the prophets? They, they searched, verse 11, what or what manner of time. They, they wanted to know as much as they could. And what was propelling them? The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he, the Spirit, was testifying in prophecy beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and then the glories that would follow. The spirit of Christ who was in them, who was indicating beforehand. Peter's talking about prophecy. The fact that they were being told and revealed of the things that were to come. Now, he's going to come back to this topic, not only in his first letter, but even in his second letter. Peter adds this insight. He says, above all, we have to understand that no prophecy of Scripture came from one person's own private interpretation. For such prophecy was never brought forth just by the will of man, but by the will of God who spoke to them, and they were carried along through the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.20. And so it's these prophets then who were searching, inquiring, wanting to know. It was a function of the Holy Spirit working in them, the Spirit of Christ revealing about himself. And what did he testify about himself? The sufferings and the glory that would come. Again, when we read this, we think, yeah, of course, we already know that. The prophets believed in the coming of a promised Messiah. 
But they could not fully understand how the promised Savior was going to suffer. That picture, that piece of the puzzle was difficult for them to wrap their mind around. And it wasn't just them. In fact, the disciples had that same struggle. In fact, today, Israel as a nation still has that same struggle, right? Paul says that the gospel is a stumbling block to them. How could the Savior suffer? Be smitten for us, bruised for our transgressions, esteemed not. And yet, other pieces of the puzzle that say that he's going to have a kingdom that will never end, that he will sit on the throne forever. His scepter of rule won't be taken from him. King of kings and Lord of lords, how can those things be true at the same time? The idea uh, of, a, of a powerful savior who would be suffer and who would be rejected was a puzzle piece that didn't fit in their own understanding of what the Messiah was and what he was going to come to do. By the way, that is why when Jesus then was arrested and crucified and died, even the disciples felt like, oh no, maybe he wasn't. They didn't understand this. They didn't understand that Jesus Christ was coming twice. How do you fulfill both of those pictures? The first advent fulfills that one picture. Jesus came the first time, the babe of Bethlehem, the Lamb of God, who John the Baptist says, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who gave his life for you and for me, his death and his resurrection. How does it fulfill the picture that he is the Lamb of God in the line of Judah? Because he's coming back again. The rest of that picture is yet to be fulfilled for us. But it will be. In fact, Jesus told us, I'm coming back. And a lot of the Bible tells us, then we better be ready. And so there was a part that they didn't understand that. To reconcile those things. And again, likewise... There are times where God does a work in your life. You have the spirit within you. And sometimes we have a hard time making connection of the puzzle piece that God gives you today. And where does that fit in your life? How is that going to be played out? Again, the disciples, even after Jesus died and rose again, he comes to them and, and Luke records it for us. And he says to them in Luke 24, verse 25, he said, my paraphrase, Evatos, you guys are foolish. How slow are you in your head, in your heart, that you didn't believe all that the prophets spoke of? Don't you know that it was necessary that I, the Christ, would have to suffer and that I would die? But then I then would enter into glory. And then here's what Luke says. And then beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus explained all things concerning himself. You know what my complaint to Luke is? Why didn't you record some of that for us? 
So what can we learn by way of example? There's going to be times where we will not fully understand what the Spirit is doing in our lives. We won't fully understand why and what the Spirit is working out. But gang, we can still trust Him. Because the same Spirit of Christ who was in them, who is in the apostles, who are in, is in us, testifies of the work of God in our lives. And likewise, there are times where God will bring you, if you will, a puzzle piece of suffering, of pain, of hurt, of confusion. And you're going to be like, like, if you're like me, I don't see how this fits. I actually don't like this. Can I exchange it for something else? And yet God is working out the picture he wants to do in your life. And he promises it's going to be good. And he promises he'll complete it. And here's the thing. We, we already know what the picture on the puzzle box is for our life. Anybody here puzzle? You guys like puzzles? I'm not a puzzle person. I like games. But I'm not a puzzle person. But I've done them, right? You get the corner pieces and... Now, the advantage of a puzzle is that you can you know what you're building. Unless it's those crazy ones that are just all one color, right? You torture yourself, anyways. You know what the picture in the puzzle box of our life is? It's Jesus. God is working in you and through you, in your heart, and with all of the things that God does, because he wants to make you like Jesus. And we can trust that work. Sometimes we don't understand it. It says, to them it was revealed. And so there's parts where God did reveal something. And what was revealed to them? What was revealed to them is that it wasn't just for them. It's not to themselves, but it was to us. It was to a future generation that they were ministering the things which then were now being reported, he says, to them through those who preach the gospel to you by the same Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So one of the things the Spirit did reveal was that the words and the visions and the dreams and the prophecies that they received, that it was going to be for a later time. God told Daniel, Daniel, seal this vision up until a later time. And so the prophets had this God-given sense that what they were commissioned to do and they were faithful to do, that their actions and their words and their obedience today would transcend their own life to other generations to be a positive blessing for others. The long game. They couldn't fully understand. They couldn't see how it was all going to play out. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that for many of them, they died in faith. Not only did they live by faith, they died in faith, having not received the fullness of the promise that was given to them, but they saw far off what was going to be promised. And so they, they were assured of it. They embraced it. They're like, all right, we can do this. And yet they themselves, like us, Pilgrims and strangers on earth, Hebrews eleven thirteen. What's the takeaway? For us, there's a parallel. 
Listen, God's work in us includes making an impact and leaving a legacy, right? an impact for the people around us now and a legacy for the next generation. Because yes, God loves you and he wants to work in you and reveal his son to you and make you more like Christ. But part of that work includes God working then through you to others. Because it's not just you that God has in mind. It's your family, it's your spouse, it's your friends, it's your neighbors. It's the person at Family Mart. It's the gate guard. It's your coworker. And yet God's working in you so that you and I can be light and salt and impact for the people around us. It's not just for you that the spirit of God is seeking to minister, but also then to be an extension of his ministry to others. In so many various ways, we, I mean, one of those ways is we're told very plainly in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says that the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our trials and tribulations, so that with the same comfort we have received, we can then comfort other people with that same comfort. It's the idea that God gives you comfort plus a little extra so that you can share it. If you've been around for some time, you've heard me. It's, it's like when you get French fries and there's bonus fries at the bottom of the bag. Like for me, I'm like, they're all mine. But God says, no, you should share those. Comfort's like the bonus fries. We, we get enough for us, but there's extra that we can share. And God wants us to share with others. To make an impact to the people around us now. But also, if the Lord tarries for a generation that transcends us. I'm not that old, but I'm getting older. And the more that I'm getting older, the more I'm thinking about legacy. And the generation behind me. And if the Lord tarries, what am I leaving them? My own family, but also, you know, the guys, the young guys that God has his hand on here at our church. And I can say this makes me really excited that, man, there's, we're, we're in good hands. The Josh and the Genoas and the Azers and the Annas and I, I'm really excited. He goes on to say, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, and notice things which angels desire to look into. So he reminded them, how did this word come to you? You, you are the recipient of God's work from the beginning through the prophets, through this message of hope, through salvation, who then the apostles heard, Peter himself who heard it and delivered to them through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The bad news is that all sinners, we all fall short of the glory of God. The good news is, but God in his great mercy and love sent his son to live and die for you and for me. If we place our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. That message it's been delivered. And the responsibility of that message has been delivered. And the same spirit who worked in the prophets of old, who worked in the apostles, our work is at work in our life too. The same spirit sent from heaven, who opened your eyes and your heart to the truth of God's love 
his forgiveness and his grace. See, that same spirit wants then to us to be the sharer of that message. Our gift of salvation is a gift that God wants us to share with other people. It's such an amazing gift. Even the angels are curious about it. What does it mean that the angels desire to look into it? I have to be honest, I don't know know exactly. I I know the angels don't experience salvation, so there's a uh, curiosity there. They don't have the same dynamic and relationship that we have. And so I imagine the angels who then look at you and me as, you know, we're wretched beings in rebellion to God. And yet, by God's grace and mercy, even while we're yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us. And then we come to salvation. It's such a mystery to them. But at the same time, the Bible says, even if one sinner turns or repents, all of heaven goes into party mode. The angels rejoice. All that to say, Peter wants us his original audience and you and me to understand the greatness of the gift of salvation that you and I have. Because hard times are going to come. Challenges are going to come. And we're going to be tempted to discount that gift. We're going to be tempted to think that it's of no value. But when we can understand and appreciate and have a perspective of our great salvation that we wouldn't think little of it or, or take it for granted. Along with that then comes strength and perspective that we need. And that's where Peter will bring us. Communion becomes a very tangible way for us to remember this. Communion in many ways is uh, the gospel tasteable. Tangible. The elements of the bread and the cup. Paul says that they, or Jesus himself, who Paul just echoed. The bread that represents the body of Christ. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he would take the bread, break it, bless it, hand it to the disciples and say, eat this. This is my body broken for you. And likewise, manner, we're told he would take the cup already very symbolic, already very special, but he would amplify the meaning and he then would say, this is my blood. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, Paul would say, we do so in remembrance of Christ. And the cup that represents, he would say, this is my blood, the new covenant that we've been saved by God's grace alone. So this morning we get to remember, and I would even say rejoice in the fact That God has saved us. He's given us this great gift of salvation. Communion reminds us of the price that was paid and the greatness of the gift of grace. Amen? All right. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray that our hearts would be prepared as we enter into a time of worship, of song, that we think about the words that we sing, the meaning of them. And Lord, as we have this time of communion, Lord, though it may be brief, we pray that it would be um, significant. 
Can we pause just for a couple minutes to thank you, to worship you, to get our eyes off of our problems and ourselves and back onto you where it, they need to be. And to remember just the tremendous value and worth of the fact that you gave us new life and all that that means, Lord. The treasures, the inheritance, the grace, the wisdom, the peace, the blessing, the provision, the healing, your very presence, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.